Welcome to the Talking Recruitment Podcast from the REC. Every week we look at all the latest insights, perspectives and experiences from across our diverse recruitment industry. Hello everyone and welcome to the latest edition of Talking Recruitment, the REC podcast with me, Neil Carberry, the REC Chief Executive. Delighted to welcome you along this week. It's been another busy week at the REC and around the country. A few things to update you on before we get into the detail of today's uh, discussion. I draw your attention to the REC's latest jobs recovery tracker, which was published on the 13th of August. That gives a clear sign that job ad numbers are continuing to rise. Of course, a, a pretty robust bounce back from the lockdown, although it is a long road back. So robust, going up every time we check, but path back. We'll wait and see whether uh, that's uh, borne out in the jobs outlook data, which is going to be published by the REC on Wednesday, the 19th of August. So do look out for that. That's our indications from uh, hiring companies as to their future plans. That has been pretty positive over the last month uh, in terms of trends. And certainly that seems to come through the recovery tracker that we saw, saw published recently. That that good news in terms of activity is starting to pick up in a in a substantial way is of course absolutely necessary to the jobs recovery of the UK because at the same time as recruitment really starting up again, we know that many companies are making difficult decisions faced with uh, cash issues and and issues with demand as the as lockdown eases and things like the coronavirus job retention scheme ends. The official data uh, that was published recently is very clear that we are likely to see a, uh, a reasonably robust trend in redundancies through the the rest uh, the rest of the year and likely higher unemployment because of that. So getting hiring going again is a critical part of uh, delivering a recovery that works for everyone. And actually, that's one of the things we want to try and dig into on today's podcast. I'm delighted to welcome uh, Neil Morrison, the HR Director at Seven Trent to the pod. Thanks for joining us, Neil. Thanks for having me. And Neil, you've always been a, uh, a great proponent of the importance of, of good candidate experience. But I think it's fair to say as we look at that trend of some job creation happening, things picking up, but also a number of redundancies, particular worries coming out of recent official data that uh, those transitions that people will need to make will be more difficult for young people than for uh, prime age workers. Is that something that's on your mind? Very much so. I mean, I, I think one of the things we're very mindful of as a regional business is the economic environment that's around us in the areas that we operate. And whilst it would be fair to say that nobody has had a good experience of the pandemic, I think those younger people have seen themselves disproportionately impacted, whether that's through education or whether it's through the the uh, way in which the furlough scheme and, and now the redundancies that we're seeing are impacting areas which are predominantly quite strong for, for employing younger workers. And so we're very mindful of the role that we think we should be playing in trying to help support uh, the recovery. I think that's a powerful insight, and and many businesses around the country, you know, it's a, it's not a uniform picture right now um, in terms of whether workplaces are open or closed, and how people are thinking about recruitment because different sectors are are opening up at different paces. 
But of course, as a as a utilities firm, uh, you've been open throughout. What have been your reflections on that experience at Severn Trent and what you've learned from everything that's happened over the last period to take into how we think about the recovery? So we've had about half of our workforce that have been operating throughout from their normal places of work and, and working broadly in the same way that they would have done beforehand, obviously, with you know social distancing, et cetera, in place. And the other half of the workforce have been working remotely because of the closure of offices. But we're, we're very much focused on trying to get people back in and, and getting to a sense of as much business as usual as we can. And that extends, you know, when we're talking about young people to things like providing virtual work experience for for those at school, providing opportunities for internships, even during the summer, during kind of the lockdown period, and, and thinking about how we increase the number of apprenticeships that we offer. So really just trying to focus on playing our part in getting back to normal as much as possible, but taking the lessons, as you say, from the way that we've operated over the last few months and seeing ways in which we can combine the two to uh, improve the way we operate but also the opportunities that we can provide. So I'm really interested in that point that you made about virtual uh, internships and and how you can structure and learn from what you're doing now to to support and craft good entry-level routes for young people into the business because I think it's fair to say that you know one sort of knee-jerk reaction in many businesses is that experienced staff have probably been through a recession before or at least have a set of skills that makes them able to work their way through and you know taking on a young person at a time like this is seen as a risk and you've just very much positioned the youth employment challenge as an opportunity for business but of course, it's not the same as kind of bringing someone into a workplace or out and about on the road with seven Trent engineers where things are entirely normal and you kind of learn by doing and working with the team. The, how, does, how, how do you make that experience supportive for a young person when you're doing more virtually? It's been a fascinating journey, if I'm totally honest, to, to try and understand how you get the depth of experience virtually. I think what we've learned during the period of time is quite, in, it, there's a couple of quite interesting things. One, actually, we can get the quality of experience if you structure it with the right level of thought around education. So you need to be more mindful of how you present. So to give an example, we've been working with two schools in social mobility cold spots in the region because we recognise, again, that they are probably going to be harder hit than than other areas and working with the teachers to try and structure our work experience programs virtually and providing a combination of in-class exercises or facilitated exercises with the teachers but with information provided by us in in seven trends so that we're approaching it in a in a much more blended way than perhaps we would have done before where it would have been a you know, almost kind of sitting with Nelly kind of approach that we might have taken in, in the offices. The other interesting thing that I think has come from this is we're, we're starting to see some evidence that virtual work experience perhaps is more comfortable for some young people who come from 
perhaps lower socioeconomic backgrounds or social mobility cultivars that I was referring to, where they feel more confident doing it in a blended environment that I've described, and they would feel bowling up to the office and being in the offices with people. And, and therefore, we, we, we've started to, and talking to other people, there's experience that this is happening in other organisations as well. We're starting to see that perhaps people with lower confidence are expressing themselves more. So it's been a fascinating way in which we can learn uh, how we can get better as we kind of emerge out the other side. And I think we'll see this as a as a continuing part of our offering, even when we can bring people more readily back into our our physical workspaces. Yeah, as we go through this period, whether I, I think all of us went into the lockdown thinking it's probably lockdown for a few months and then things will normalise quite quickly. And, and of course, what's happening is a much more gradual return to the workplace. And uh, you and I see eye to eye that the that the office is not dead. But that doesn't mean that a lot of the things that we've learned in this time, as you've just said, can't be applied in a in a kind of in the new normal i suppose everything you've just said suggests that kind of as a firm your approach to recruitment i mean especially of 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 entry level roles like apprenticeships will change for good is that the right takeaway for for me to take and and how far does that extend to other roles not just entry levels we have learned i mean in many ways, you know, in my previous organisation at Penguin Random House, we were big users of video interviewing for many years before we'd even considered the thought of a pandemic. And I think many organisations, including ourselves, are starting to see, you know, the benefits of, of virtual assessment for, for a number of different opportunities, both at entry level and thereafter. Where we've learnt in terms of doing virtual assessment centres for our apprentice entrance this year, I think there are parts of that will blend in, but I also think there's some benefit to physical presence and experience as well. And I don't want to lose that, but I do think that, as I say, there's some, perhaps some lessons we can learn about the comfort that different types of personality and different types of talent might have in different approaches to to assessment and selection. And, and, and that's got to be really interesting because as we come out of this you know, situation, if you like, as we come out of the recession, we need to build something that is better for all. And that's at the very heart of everything we believe that in terms of our approach to youth employment. It has to be all encompassing. It has to be fairer. It has to be more socially responsible. Otherwise, we won't have learned anything from the experience that we've just been through. Well, especially if you take into account the kind of furore that exists around exam results right now, whether it's the SQA in Scotland or what's happened with A-levels in England, that piece around the kind of crutches that maybe employers had to assess educational achievement, we have to accept now that a young person with a C at A-level might actually have got a B or an A or indeed a D or an E, and the, the kind of almost false predictive power that maybe some decision-making put into the put into the system before, that's gone. So maybe there's a, a kind of a push towards thinking again about how we assess young people's potential 
in that as well. I very much agree. I mean, I, I've long been a champion for removing uh, assessment based on either degrees or A-level qualifications, because I don't think they're a good predictor of performance. And I don't believe the education system is a meritocracy. And so, you know, as recruiters, where we place uh, an undue bias on those elements, we're effectively outsourcing selection to, to an unfair system. And, you, you know, in many ways, I feel very, very sorry for Ofqual because I don't think they could have got a solution that wouldn't have been criticised by pretty much everyone anyway. And, and instead of actually being a maybe an assessment of the approach that was taken this year, what I think we're starting to unpick is what you say is that a, a sense that educational qualifications are not a good means of selection and organisations and businesses, we need to be building uh, selection and assessment processes that are based on the requirements that we have in in our in the roles in the company, whether those are skills based or culturally based and not placing the emphasis on qualifications. And if something good comes out of this by organisations doing that and moving away, then I'll be a very happy person. I think there's a lot in there about kind of understanding the purpose of school exams as opposed to the purpose of assessment for for employment and indeed progression. I suppose a lot a lot of that kind of resonates for you know the REC and REC members in agency who are supplying hiring companies as well in terms of probably the the dual role that agencies play one of which is to kind of advise and I think the advisory purpose of of employment businesses is I think is more important than ever right now on how to do things well uh, and as defined as making the right decision commercially for the company, but also treating people well. And on the other hand, making sure that they themselves are employing the kinds of tools that sit well with the outlook that you've just set out. Because, you know, one of the the criticisms, and I used to face it myself when I was at the CBI, talking about what large companies in the the UK do, and 7Trend is... Uh, while it's a regional company, is a substantial business. It, it, you, you tend to get, well, that's great for you. You're a, you're a large company and a stable business and you've got time and scope to do this. But it seems to me that unless we're trying to push this into the water system, if you'll forgive the pun, for, for the whole of business, we're, we're at risk of being seen as kind of separate from the challenges that society has. I think that's I think that's right. I, th- I think our jobs has has to be to champion a, a better way of, of approaching recruitment, but also not making it unattainable. And that's why, you know, I think when sometimes we talk about very complex assessment processes or, you know, software solutions that you know are unaffordable for a lot of small and medium-sized enterprises, the the you know, it can feel like it's one rule for big business and another for other organisations. And I don't think it needs to be like that. I think we can find ways in which we look at job requirements and translate those back to simple assessment rather than relying on a, a proxy, which is educational 
requirements. But, you know, I understand that for many of your members, it will be very, very difficult when a, a client comes and says, I want someone with, you know, at least a 2-1 from a Russell Group University. It's a, it's a very difficult conversation to say, well, well, do you really need that? Why do you need that? You know, would you be willing to look outside of that? And I think it, it's also important that those people who do come from uh, different backgrounds of all types are championed within the workplace as well so that we can demonstrate different types of experience and different paths uh, because I think that it, it's often easier to, to show people rather than to, to simply tell them what they should be doing. I think that's true and you know perhaps one of the, the lessons of this sort of lockdown period is that as business leaders we've been a bit more open about ourselves you know we've invited colleagues into our into our homes if only over zoom or teams or other video conferencing uh software is available and there's a sort of a humanity to that that you know, enables us to kind of talk about stories that come from people across our business about path, the paths that they've taken whether that is Kind of senior people or people who are, you know, recent apprenticeship completers um, and just getting a, a bit of humanity into that narrative that encourages people to think that, you know, people like me can make a success of a career in this company. It is it, certainly the case that perhaps too much of our recruitment process has focused on how do we make our decision easier at the end which means reducing the, the the available number of choices, we have to ask questions about, well, is that shortlist at the end the right shortlist to achieve our overall aims? And that, that is more complex. But as you say, I don't think it's necessarily too complex as long as you design it in at the front. We've been doing some work at the REC with FutureLearn recently on uh, a course on recruiting and hiring online that's launching soon. And a lot of the kind of the good stuff you can do to get this right is really just about thinking about it up front. Is that fair? I think that's right. I mean, I, I often say to, to my team, you know, if, if talent acquisition, for want of a better phrase, is fundamental to the performance in the organisation, then it shouldn't be easy. It, it shouldn't be something that we can, we can make happen just through a, a very simple kind of reduction of numbers. It, it should be hard. We should be working hard to really find the the very very best people for seven trent which might not be necessarily the very best people for another organization it could be entirely different but that's what i want us to be doing and 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 that means that you know sometimes you have got to sweat a little bit to do it and i do worry that in this environment particularly we we start to see it as a numbers game and, and news stories about you know, a thousand applicants for a hotel receptionist, for example, uh, and you see a lot of narrative around, you know, people saying that they haven't heard back from recruiters, et cetera, et cetera. We've got to find a way of both being able to handle the volume that we're likely to see over the next period of time, but also doing it in a humane way that allows us to find the very best talent. And it, it's particularly tricky for young people because they may not necessarily have the years of experience or the, you know, the, the specific examples that we ask for in some of our recruitment processes to demonstrate. And, and 
and we shouldn't be overlooking them simply because of that. So I do think it's uh, it, it's within our ability to find a way through it. But I, I think we have to be very mindful, as you say, of you know the individuals that are involved and, and making it more focused on um, genuinely trying to find the best individual talent and recognizing that that will come in very different packages to to perhaps the previous time that we looked. But that's beholden both on on those people that are doing the recruitment and those people that are actually doing the hiring. And so it needs businesses to step up as well as the suppliers that work for them at the same time. And I think that that supplier relationship is really important. I mean, I can sharpen a, a, a long-standing REC knife when I think about the difference between price and value in, in kind of working with talent acquisition teams, which is, you know, if, if from the client side, a business is asking for the lowest possible price on a contingent basis, it is highly likely that a recruitment firm is not going to commit a lot of time and effort and cost into some of the things that as a client you might increasingly want on the back of things like Black Lives Matter on inclusion or thinking about, you talked about working with social mobility cold spots, thinking about linking in with uh, local schools, colleges, third sector organisations about accessing different pools of talent. One of the pieces of advice that I have offered to many REC members recently is we've got to find a way to to climb the ladder a little bit in terms of not, you know, continue to work closely with talent acquisition colleagues, but also having a greater understanding as businesses of what's in the head of people like yourself, Neil, in terms of what is the long-term HR picture and how it aligns to the business plan of an organisation and not focusing on specific roles at specific roles at specific times but actually what the the structure of how we as a recruitment business offers value into a client who is who is thinking differently on the back of all this i think that's right i think it's also about uh partnership and, and a slightly longer term approach and you know not just in terms of uh recruitment but across the board you know we try and find partners who we can work with over the longer term because they're only really going to get to understand us and we're only going to get to understand them if if we do that. And, and that's when you get, to your point, the added value rather than it being seen as a, a commoditized piece of work for a price. And I, I think that's fundamentally important. And, and, you know, if we believe, as I passionately do, that we have a role to play in trying to create a better working environment and society, on the back of the challenges that we've been through at the last few months. We're only going to do that if we all pull together in the same direction. We're not going to be doing it if we're trying to get one over on one another, whether that's within our supply chain or whether it's on other organisations. It has to be about coming together to, to better drive value for the organisations and a better work experience and recruitment experience for candidates in a very, very tricky market. I think if we get that right and thinking a bit more holistically, that enables discussions to happen about all sorts of uh, potential candidate pools that are at risk of being either forgotten about or overlooked. Young people, but also you know, people with disabilities, people coming from disadvantaged backgrounds. 
And that should be something that we as a business community as a whole care about if we think about protecting and enhancing the kind of value that responsible capitalism can deliver. You know, at the REC, we talk about making great work happen. And I think if we don't have that kind of public purpose, then the kind of public permission that we all have as companies to operate in the way we do uh, starts to be open to questions. So I think it's a big and tough challenge, but entirely the right one for us to take on. Neil, thank you for joining us today on the pod. If people want to catch up with you and what you're thinking about, how can they best do that? So, yeah, I tweet at at Neil Morrison. I write a generally a weekly blog at changeeffect.com. And also on LinkedIn, I'm more than happy to connect with people and talk about opportunities and how we can work together to try and challenge some of these issues. Fantastic, Neil. Thank you again for joining us. And uh, just before we close, a quick reminder that the REC conference, REC 2020, is just three weeks away. You can find out all the details at uh, rec.uk.com forward slash rec2020. Fantastic day. Picking up on many of the themes of this discussion, actually, around uh, the future of recruitment, some of the issues around leadership and what we're learning from the uh, from the crisis to take into the new normal and lots of the usual practical advice and, uh, and workshop se- sessions. Of course, all digitally delivered these days because that's how we do things. But do, uh, do take a look at the website and join us on the day. Over 600 people already joining us. Fantastic keynote speakers. And so that's at rec.uk.com. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, do have a look at the uh, back catalogue on the REC website. Some really interesting uh, ones on there. The last episode with Tina Norling on how the world has changed for recruiters in the care sector is a really good listen. We talked a bit with Neil today about the candidate experience and why it's still matters and episode 32 with Steve Bernard of Connectwell digs deeply into that so there's a a a range of input available for you there do join us again on another episode of the REC podcast thank you again Neil for joining us thank you and have a great rest of your day thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed this podcast join me for another episode soon And check out our back catalogue at rec.uk.com to catch up on some other fantastic discussions that are really helpful for recruiters. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify. So subscribe to REC Podcasts to never miss an episode.